You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. A key estate planning tool recommended by many estate planning lawyers is the testamentary trust. Now, these trusts can be extremely useful for a number of reasons, especially where there is a minor beneficiary involved. However, one of the things that's not so well understood is the taxation of these trusts, including both the the taxation of the income derived by the trust, as well as distributions made by the trust to the beneficiaries. I'm Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and here to talk to me about the issue of the taxation of testamentary trusts is Linda Bruce, one of my senior technical services managers in the team. Hey, Linda. Hi, Craig. How are you? Very well, yourself? Yeah, good. So testamentary trusts. How exciting is this? Now, I'll just put it out there on the record. I have a will, and in that will, I've got provisions for a testamentary trust. Now... Um, one of the reasons that I thought about doing that was obviously we put that in place when, when I had, uh, me and my wife had some young children and we wanted to make sure that they were looked after. So we were very focused on those kind of um, asset protection and putting in place a structure that would uh, allow or ensure that our kids um, were adequately financially dealt with or provided for in the event that the worst of things happened. Now, um, however, there's other benefits around potentially the taxation of testamentary trust. Now, before we get into all of that, what is a testamentary trust? Yeah, very good question. What is a testamentary trust? Uh, a testamentary trust is in contrast to an intervival trust, which is set up when the person is alive. And a testamentary trust is established by an individual's will. A will will only operate uh, after the death of the individual. So a testamentary trust will come into effect after the individual's death. And usually um, is when the state is fully administered by the executor of the state, the debt was fully paid. And uh, by the terms of the will, the executor can transfer certain assets or all of the remaining assets into the trust. And that trust effectively is the testamentary trust. So to have a testamentary trust, I've got to have those provisions or the, the rules for the creation of that trust. In the will. In the will, absolutely, yes. So so what if someone dies intestate or there's no provisions in the will for a testamentary trust? Can we still set up a testamentary trust for the beneficiaries? Unfortunately, you can't. Um, and there's very specific rules um, where a state proceeds trust that can be established, but it's outside the scope of today's discussion. Uh, we do have an article on that if you want to uh, look into it. 
Um, but generally speaking, if you do not have the provision in your will, a testament to trust it's cannot be uh, effective. It's not no, it's not yeah, possible. So, yeah. So that and that that is not an uncommon kind of question that we get. That uh, mm. we've got someone that's passed away, you know, a client of a financial advisor. Mm. Um, they're looking to look after the minor children. Um, potentially, a lot of circumstances, unfortunately, still people passing away intestate or without a will um, and they're looking to do some planning and they'd love to get some assets in a, into a testamentary trust especially look after the minor children and the answer is simply you can't have a testamentary trust unless you plan for it put That's a will right. together and put the provisions for the trust into that uh, into that will yes now now I mentioned it before in terms of why I wanted to set up a testamentary trust because we'd had a couple of young kids I mm. wanted to make sure that they were financially looked after what are some of the other reasons why someone would set up a testamentary trust? Uh, could it be a beneficiary who's suffering from a disability and really needs to be looked after? A testamentary mm. trust could be a really good vehicle to look after those disabled beneficiaries. And so that, that, could, that, could that also include, just thinking about that, so mm. obviously you might have someone that's got a um, some sort of mental incapacity yeah. that may not be able to look after the money. Um, what about things like people that have gambling addictions or drug addictions? Yeah. Do you see testamentary trusts set up for those kinds of beneficiaries? Absolutely. Lock away the capital, but provide a certain, uh, some level of income support for those beneficiaries just to protect the beneficiaries against themselves. Uh, that was yeah. a very, um, a really good point. And other things I can think of would be um, if an adult child who is running a small business and may or may not be declaring bankruptcy, but just to protect that child from declaring bankruptcy against the creditors, that could be a really good vehicle to do it. And uh, this one, a little bit controversial, used to be effective, but not so much these days. That's to protect the relationship breakdown. Um, yes, it's... Of the testamentary trust can offer, if set up properly, can offer a certain degree of protection, but not so much because the family mm. court is so powerful, right? Um, but we are going to cover those uh, in details in the coming month. We're going to um, do another article on those issues. Right. So actually, that's a really important point there that we're actually putting together uh, a three-part series on testamentary trust. So the first part that we're talking about today is the taxation of testamentary trust. So if you've got further um, questions around this, you can always give us a call on the First Tech team or we do have the article that will be available or that is available um, and that's titled Testamentary Trusts and Tax Issues. So if you've got any questions, certainly go and have a look at that. Now, I'm just bringing you back there to protection against bankruptcy. Now, obviously, you know, we're living in the times of COVID. Uh, a lot of businesses mm. are struggling. Um, so in terms of protection against bankruptcy, I suppose what we're really saying there is a parent might want to put in place or change their will to include a testamentary trust because they know that their son may be financially struggling or their business is financially struggling. Mm. And in, in the event that someone passed away, the last thing you would want is the parent's assets um, heading off to satisfy the debts of the beneficiary um, the, the parent wants the, the their assets to remain available so what we do there is we set up the provisions of a testamentary trust so um, through the terms of the will all the assets head into the testamentary trust um, and so that would protect those assets from from the creditors of the the 
beneficiary. Yep, yep. And, and also seek legal advice, right, Craig? The, the trust yeah. really needs to be set up properly and the beneficiaries cannot be seen as co- having control in those trusts. Yeah, and that's the big, that was the big one around relationships and relationship mm. breakdown as well. If you've mm. got control over the trust, then, yeah, it's <laughs> fraught, with, fraught with risk there because, yeah. uh, as you said before, the family court do have... Um, quite extraordinary powers and they can just reach in and say, you know what, no, you control that trust. You are the trustee or the the appointer of the trust. Uh, Therefore, we'll have those assets as part of the family settlement. Thank you very much. Now, obviously, in terms of the the topic that we're talking about today is taxation of testamentary trust. So if I'm going to set up for a testamentary trust for all of these other reasons, also for tax advantages, what are those tax advantages? To start with, um, one of the major benefits um, is that a minor child being a beneficiary of a testamentary trust, they're able to receive accepted trust income. So as we all know, um, a minor child usually is taxed at the highest marginal tax rate on the income, mm-hmm. that's not a personal exertion income. However, a trust income uh, derived by assets transferred from the state, deceased state, into a testamentary trust, those income generated by those assets are accepted trust income. What it means is uh, those income can actually tax at the ordinary adult's, um, adults rates so it's not taxed at a penalty rate. And also this type of income can actually attract the low income and the low income, middle income tax offsets. So as a result, a minor child being a beneficiary of a testamentary trust is able to receive around $21,800 a year without having to pay tax. Assuming yeah, they I, don't have any other income. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest, that was one of the one of the reasons, you know, <laughs> a person that is a technical person in the industry, that also attracted me for for the reasons that I've got a testamentary trust built into my will is because um, I've got two kids. So what you're telling me there is they're both going to get that tax-free threshold that, yep. uh, that adults are uh, entitled to. So the first 40, what was it, 42-odd thousand dollars worth of income coming out of that trust is not going to be subject to tax at all, just under normal tax rules because they're going to be taxed as a normal adult beneficiary. Yep, because you have a two, right? It's around 21000 each, so 42000 um, between yeah. the two of them. Really tax yep. effective. Yep. Yep. Now, we've seen some rule changes here, haven't we? Because there yeah. was... And look, I never thought there was much uncertainty, but mm. there was an element of greyness here that... Mm. Um, what people were doing was was subsequently adding assets into testamentary trusts, so assets um, that weren't being devolved from the estate of the deceased uh, person that set up the testamentary trust. Uh, and we would have always taken the view that, well, okay, you can go and add extra assets in, but you're not going to get accepted trust income on that on the income of those assets. Yeah. Um, but there was a little bit of greyness and and just recently the government to remove any sense of doubt they changed the rules didn't they can you want to yeah. just run through what they've done there no exactly so we always thought it is supposed to be the way it it was it is but um the the old legislation didn't really specify that the income can only be uh relating to the assets that has to come from the deceased state 
and that has to be transferred as per the individual's will. So um, some taxpayers potentially could argue uh, and inject additional up, uh, capital uh, subsequently and try to argue the income generated by the new capital injection could also form part of the accepted trust income. So the new legislation enacted uh, a couple of months ago, back in June 2020. So what it means um, is just it clarifies, made it crystal clear that from 1st July 2019, um, only income derived from assets that's transferred from the deceased state um, as per the individual's will, only those assets and if those assets were sold, uh, the reinvested proceeds can also qualify and the income generated by those assets can qualify uh, and the accept the trust income provision. But no. newly inject the capitals, no matter how you want to argue it, you can't get it. So Okay, well, it, what about mm. okay, what about if the testamentary trust wants to go and borrow? And it's using the assets that it's derived from the estate as capital. Yes. Is that seen as injected income or is, sorry, injected capital or is, or is that somehow getting that, around the rules a little bit? That's a really interesting question. If we go to the nitty gritty details of the new section, the new section is only talking about the assets that are coming from the deceased state that's in relation to the individual's will. So the borrow, newly borrowed amount, I'm afraid it's not relating to the original assets transferred from the deceased state. So if the trustee of the testamentary trust goes ahead and borrow additional amount, unfortunately income derived by those additional amounts would not be covered by accepted trust income provision. Right. Bugger. Bugger. Yeah. No <laughs> now, um, also, another question we, we get a fair amount on this mm. particular topic is um, how about super or insurance proceeds? Yeah, that, if, that... if they end up in that testamentary trust, sorry to cut you off there, but right. if they end up in that testamentary trust, uh, I would assume they'd be accepted, you know, assets that would count towards accepted trust income. Is that right? It depends, right? So if those proceeds um, were directed, purposely directed by the individual, of course, before the death, for example, they nominated the legal personal representative as the binding or non-lapsing beneficiary. So they nominated the legal personal representative as a beneficiaries of their life insurance per, uh, policy outside of super. So those proceeds will... Uh, uh, will be paid to the deceased state. And if the individual's will clearly specified that upon receiving those proceeds, the executor must transfer those proceeds into a testamentary trust. Craig, overview, first tax view is that there's a clear nexus between the assets transferred from the deceased state. It's part of the deceased assets. As per the individual's will, our view is that income derived by those assets would be uh, accepted trust income and it will be taxed at ordinary adults rate. Right. So a couple of points that come to mind here mm. when, when I'm listening to you is, first of all, this is clearly one of those examples. So sometimes you, 
you get people saying, okay, I can nominate the legal personal representative, i.e. the executor of someone's estate in a binding death benefit nomination. Why would I want to do that? Why wouldn't I um, nominate the beneficiary directly? Well, this is one of, <laughs> one of the reasons because you want that, um, that superannuation to go into the estate so therefore it can be directed, obviously through the terms of the will, into a testamentary trust. Now, if you had nominated... Uh, let's say a child directly to receive the death benefit via a binding death benefit nomination, for example, mm. well, the money doesn't go into the estate, doesn't it? it? It actually goes direct to that beneficiary. So we wouldn't be able to get those assets into the testamentary trust. No, you without, won't. Yeah, mm. you'd, you'd lose that accepted trust. You might be able to inject the assets, but you're not going to get this accepted trust income. Um, on those assets you inject in that situation. Yeah, but if the uh, child um, is receiving those proceeds individually, um, those the income derived by the proceeds would be accepted income in any case. But the problem right. is the um, uh, there's no capital protection, right? <laughs> Do you trust your child upon turning age of 18, on 18th birthday? They have full legal access to those amounts. So can a parent trust their child to use mm. this money wisely? I wouldn't. I have a little daughter. I wouldn't. So testament trust would perhaps it would be my choice. Yeah, that's, that's the way yeah. of controlling that. So yeah. I suppose to the extent that you've got, you know, those rules around um, death benefit income streams. Yeah. So if you've got a a a superannuation benefit, someone passes away, they've got minor kids, we know that those minor children are allowed to receive the death benefit in the form of an income stream up until they turn 25. Um, so during that period, all of those pension payments will also be accepted trust income. Um, those payments uh, would be death benefit payment, right? Yep. So it yep. depends on the death, uh, the age of the deceased person. And if the deceased person was over age eight, uh, 60, regardless of the age of the child, the pension payment would be tax-free. Yeah. Yeah. Assume if, we, if we've got minor kids, yeah. more than likely, they're yeah. not going to be over the age of 60. That's right. <laughs> unless, unless, you know, unless yeah. they're, uh, you know, <laughs> one of these uh, people with uh, that has a, the innate ability to attract a younger spouse. <laughs> yeah. You might have that kind of situation, but I, I think a lot of circumstances here might be where um, where the child is received. You know, the child uh, is a minor child; their parents yeah. are, are reasonably young. They've died of an accident or some sort of um, health issue. Yeah. Um. So in that situation, because both the recipient and the deceased member are under age sixty. Yeah. Then those pension payments can be taxed, but yeah. it's taxed. Yeah, tax at um, uh, normal adult rates and the taxable component can provide a 15% pension yeah. tax offset. Yeah, but I suppose what you're also saying here though, and, and that was a, a very important point, is that yes, you, you can potentially get that outcome from supernation death benefit for, for minor kids. However, what happens when they turn 18? Mm. And that they've now got full control of that account-based pension. Um, they could start commuting lump sum. So typically you might have a self-managed super fund and you might try and build in provisions to make them non-commutable and increase the complexity of the fund 50 times. Um, but a, a lot of circumstances, these types of payments would be paid out of a large fund and there would simply be no restriction. That that 18-year-old kid could then pull out 
$100,000 and go and buy themselves a very powerful car. That's right. And, uh, and have, a, have a great time driving that around and, and depleting those assets. So um, an issue with a testamentary trust, I suppose, there is mm. that we can build into, into account limitations on when people can get access so I suppose uh, in terms of insurance proceeds, you know, insurance proceeds going directly into the estate, same sort of thing. Mm. Um, insurance proceeds, so a lot of people hold insurance through super, don't they? Yeah. So they once again, as long as those insurance proceeds are received by the super fund and then we have a binding death benefit nomination or the rules of the fund specify that the amount of money must be paid into the estate and then we've got terms under the will to create this testamentary trust and specify that those amounts go into the will, then we're all good. Those those assets mm. will form part of the assets that will generate accepted trustee income. Yeah. That, that, that's absolutely correct. And also includes insurance proceeds held outside the super where the mm. legal personal representative is actually nominated as a beneficiary of that life insurance policy. Oh, okay. I suppose another thing there would be insurance bonds, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah so, you, yep. yeah. so you could have the proceeds of an insurance bond yep. um, as long as you're nominating the legal personal representative uh, and then those amounts can then flow through into the testamentary trust as well. That's right. Yep. Okay. Terrific. Um, other tax benefits? Yes. Um, um, streaming, but <laughs> stream of the tax, that's only available to testamentary uh, discretionary trust. It would not be available to testamentary fixed trust. So how it works is that it's just really, really similar to a family trust, uh, right? The trustee of the trust, the testamentary discretionary trust, would be given the power by the will uh, to exercise discretion, uh, how to select beneficiaries to receive the trust income. So I can see three points there. So the first one is that naturally they would select um, the beneficiaries with a lower marginal tax rate. Um, that could be a minor child, as we mentioned earlier, or could be an adult uh, beneficiary who has a very low marginal tax rate. And the second one is the stream of the dividends. Um, this one's a little bit tricky. Um, if the dividends amount is relatively, dividends amounts are relatively large, uh, the trust needs to make a family trust election. Uh, mm. Otherwise, the franking credits could be lost. Um, but mm. assuming that a family uh, trust election uh, is able to be made, um, the trustee of the trust is able to select the beneficiary that can benefit the most from the refundable franking credits. And the last one is the stream of the capital gains. So the trustee is able to select the beneficiaries um, that may have a capital losses that it can absorb the capital gains. So the three points will uh, help the trust um, to uh, achieve the overall um, tax effectiveness uh, over the trust income. Yeah, um, I know, well, just recently I, I finished my, I'm gonna sound really dorky here, I finished my Masters of Taxation. Uh, and my last course was the taxation of trusts. And, and I'll tell you what, when you get into the, the taxation and streaming of different types of income, uh, that did my absolute head in. <laughs> so I was just I about to the, say, did you have fun? <laughs> oh, uh, I was very, very happy to get that to that final result and get that course done, I tell you. But I suppose what the moral of that story is, is if, if you're going to want to 
allow that trust to, to stream. One, obviously, to have um, discretion over the distribution of income um, and you want to stream different amounts to different beneficiaries. Um, go and get some really good advice when you're yeah. setting that trust up and also when you're maintaining it because those rules are really, really complicated and you're going to want to be dealing with someone that knows exactly how they work and is very confident in that area because otherwise it is really quite difficult to follow. Absolutely. Now also, a common question we get when we're looking to transfer not so much money but assets. So we might have an asset sitting in a state. We might potentially even have an asset sitting in a super fund um, that we want to pass through the estate. Now, mm. let, let's just deal with assets that are sitting in the estate that did belong to the, the deceased member. Yep. What happens from a CGT perspective? Like uh, if it's passing from the trustee of the estate through to the testamentary trust, mm. is that a disposal? How does that work? Mm, um, the tax law, the 97 Act, you want to be specific, is Division 128. What mm -hmm. it actually says is that it's not a taxing point when those assets owned by the deceased individually, just right before death, when those assets were passed from the individual to the deceased state and then subsequently passed from the deceased state, uh, to the testamentary trust. Um, it was clear based on the wording of the legislation. Um, it's not a taxing point when passing from the individual's name to the deceased state. However, it's not really crystally clear what happens from the deceased state to the testamentary trust. Uh, very luckily, the ATO has a very long-standing administrative practice the ATO actually is treating the trustee of the testamentary trust in the same way mm. yeah, as the executive yeah. of the deceased state. So what it means is that when passing those assets from the state to the testamentary trust, it's also not a taxing point. We don't have to worry about the capital gains tax. But what we do need to worry about in the return really good record is the cost base. Depending on when those assets were purchased by the, by the deceased person, if they were purchased prior to, what's the date, um, correct, 20 September 1985, meaning pre-CGT assets, so the cost base will simply be the market value on the date of death. However, it can cause a lot of headache if they, um, the assets were purchased after that date. The original cost base will be carried forward and inherited by the deceased state and then by the testamentary trust. And if it eventually passed to the end beneficiaries, that will be carried forward and inherited by those end beneficiaries as well. So it's really important to retain a good record of those cost base. Right. So the, the interesting thing there is you've got someone passing away. Um, so I suppose it's not a disposal, but um, you, you've got to see a change in legal ownership of the asset. Yeah. Um, then you've got, so the, the, it goes from the, the beneficiary when they're alive to mm. their LPR, executive of the state. Then we're going from the executive of the state through to uh, the trustee of the, the testamentary trust. So we've actually got three points there that we're just completely ignoring yes. for CGT purposes. It's only when the trustee is potentially selling that asset yep. um, that CGT may apply. Or if we're passing that asset out to the beneficiaries, mm. 
then the beneficiary, what you're saying there is they inherit that, that cost base and they potentially have a taxing point when they go and dispose of that asset. Yep, they have to pay yep. capital gains tax. <laughs> now, now, the final one here is, now we've talked about obviously capital gains mm. and assets that were belong to or owned by the deceased. Mm. Um, what happens, because quite often you see people pass away and they've got self-managed super funds and they may have something like a an investment property, residential investment property, or they might have a commercial business mm. real property. Uh, can we get that out of the super fund into the estate and then through to the testamentary trust without CGT applying? Not really. See, the division 128 we mentioned earlier, that only applies to the assets that are owned by the individual under their individual names prior to the death. Well, Silver Fund, as we all know, effectively, that's a trust. It's a separate entity. You don't really get that passing point that you don't get the capital gains. Um, uh, You get the capital gains or capital losses disregarded. Um, Mm -hmm. What happens is when that assets if that can be paid out of the funding species to the deceased state, that's a CGT event. And then it depends, right, Craig? Depending on whether the assets was actually supporting the deceased retirement phase pension or supporting the deceased accumulation interest, you may or may not get a exempt current pension income there. Um, that's the tax liability belongs to the tax, to the fund, to the super fund. Okay. So if I can just reiterate, <laughs> so if it's if the person dies while they're still in the accumulation phase, so that they were yet to reach retirement, and we're looking to pass this asset out from the SMSF through into the estate, um, that is a disposal by the mm. self-managed super fund and uh, and the ATO will want their 10% of any realised capital gain. So a lot of people think about, oh, people dying in superannuation, um, if we're paying out to beneficiaries, etc., then there's, you know, this is not what we're doing in this case, but mm. if we are paying out to a beneficiary, then the death benefit payment is tax-free. And that is true where it's going to a, a tax dependent such as a spouse. Mm. But you need to also think about tax at the fund level, and if the fund is disposing of a uh, of a residential property via an in-species death benefit payment, then the, the fund has disposed of an asset. It's triggered a potentially a capital gain, and and the ATL will want their their ten percent of that. Thank you very much. Depending obviously when how long we've owned it, but mm. um, also for for pensions. When we get someone pass away in pension phase, we have that funny rule, don't we? That yeah. says that, you know, yes, the pension ceased other than for reversionary pensions, but the rules deal with this for non-reversionary pensions as the pension ceased on death. So what we'll do is we'll assume a death benefit pension is being paid or a pension is being paid from the time of death up until the time you pass the asset out or you um, commence a new death benefit income stream. So in this situation, depending on how the fund is set up from a tax perspective, whether it's segregated or unsegregated, mm. all that sort of stuff, um, then yes, we could potentially pass that asset out to into the estate and where that was wholly supporting a pension. So let's say you had a, a fund that was in 100% in pension phase, then no CGT would apply there. Mm. Um, what about when it passes um, from the estate through to the testamentary trust trustee? That just depends on millions of different scenarios here. <laughs> 
firstly, was the taxable component and the tax-free component of the death benefit, uh, death benefit amount. Is there any life insurance? Is there any untaxed element? The bottom line is, who are the beneficiaries of this testamentary trust? Are there any beneficiaries? We only just need one of them that's not a tax dependent of the deceased member. If any of the beneficiaries fit into that categories, meaning not a tax dependent, regardless of how many other tax dependents you have in the testamentary trust, the whole entire superannuation death benefit proceeds paid from the deceased state to the testamentary trust will attract tax. Now, who's paying the tax? The executive will pay tax. How much tax do they have to pay? They pay up to 15% on the taxed element and up to 30% on the untaxed element, if any. Right. So just to be clear, so what you're talking about now is, because we we're talking about CGT at the fund level, um, now we're basically saying, okay, well, this asset's fallen through into the estate and we're mm. looking to get it through into the testamentary trust, but we're actually looking at the taxation of the death benefit itself now. Yeah, we? that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now what about what about CGT in that situation? So let's say once again we've got this residential investment property. Let's say it's come out of well, it doesn't matter really, I mm. suppose it's come out of the accumulation or pension phase. Um, so let's say let's say it's come out of the pension phase and there was no tax liability owing. It then goes into the estate. What's the CGT implication when it passes from the estate into the testamentary trust? Oh, the when the property um, is passed to the deceased state, the market value on the date the property is transferred to the state uh, will be the cost base of that property. If the state is administered very quickly and that property is passed to the testamentary trust straight away, so probably um, the executor will have a very little capital gains or capital losses during that period. Right. However, okay. yeah, it is a CGT event from the... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, so I know what you're talking so about. Yep. Yeah, so what, what you're saying, it's different there. Because the assets come from a, from a self-managed fund in this, mm. in this example... It's different from, you know, how we're talking about yeah. when the, the beneficiary owned that asset themselves, it passed to the LPR on death and then it passed out of the LPR into the testament trust and, and that change in ownership there didn't trigger any CGT consequences. Yep. But if we've got an asset that's come from a self-managed super fund, for example, um, depending on the taxation at the fund level, that will potentially trigger a CGT liability. Depending that's on correct. That. Yep. Um, but also what you're saying is if we... If that estate took, let's say, two years to be administered mm. and then, you know, for whatever reason, maybe there was a dispute about something, mm. um, and then we see that that property goes from the te from the estate into the testamentary trust, now we've got two years' worth of capital growth. Maybe if we go through some sort of crazy period like we were seeing around the country a couple of years ago where property uh, is spiking in value during that period, actually the transfer from the estate to the testamentary trust itself could trigger CGT. Is that what you're saying? Yes, correct. Right. Okay. Terrific. All right. Well, not so terrific, but um, <laughs> it's just something to be aware of, I suppose. So um, if you are looking at, at assets 
um, flowing through out of something like a super fund into this state and then through to the testamentary trust. You want to try and get that testamentary trust, uh, sorry, the estate administered as quickly as possible um, and therefore to minimise any capital gains on that transfer from that, from the executor of the estate through to the trustee of the testamentary trust. That's right, yes. Okay, terrific. Well, I think that covers everything in terms of taxation. Now, obviously, there's a whole bunch of other issues in relation to testimony trust. So as I did mention before, that we're going to put out a series of articles in relation to the, the financial planning issues involved with testimony trust. So do keep an eye out for those in future. Um, that pretty much wraps it up. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. No problems. And thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.